The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I am Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Before I begin today, I want to welcome my new sponsor, Dignity Memorial. Really thrilled to announce that they're sponsoring the show. Dignity is the largest consortium of funeral services in the U.S., um, which makes them uh, very strong, over 2,000 um, funeral services. They also sponsor invaluable community resources and write and distribute a variety of guides for those facing death and loss. And you'll be hearing more about them in the in upcoming shows. I've for a long time wanted to have someone in the in the funeral industry on the show because they're the people who've always been uh, right up close to death. So I'm looking forward to having someone from their organizations organization on and in the meantime you can find them at dignitymemorial.com they have a lot of programs you can check up out on their website uh, a lot of you know community uh, free community resources and if you know of other organizations that would appreciate the opportunity to get their work out to a very large audience at this point of people interested in loss, grief, end of life and the changing conversations about those experiences just contact me on my uh, Good Grief page at Voice America. Today I'm talking with Johanna Lunn. Johanna is an award-winning producer, director, and writer. She's crafted and assisted in crafted, crafting many compelling, entertaining, and profoundly thought-provoking programs, some of which we'll talk about today, during her 20-plus years in the business. Her work has received eight Gemini nominations, which is the Canadian equivalent of an Emmy, excuse me for that, and taken home three awards. In addition to producing more than 150 hours of television series and one-offs as an in-house executive producer, she's made independent documentaries for her own companies, Wild East Productions and Center East Media. And she won the Best Documentary at Hot Docs International Film Festival for her moving and timely film, Forgiveness, Stories for Our Time. Johanna's Johanna's worked as Director of Programming for Alliance Atlantis and played a key role in the launch of IFC, the Independent Film Channel Canada. Prior to that, she was head of independent production for CTV, Canada's number one network. She created Viewfinders, the first competitive international children's film festival in English. She's also currently working on a new work, a new film, When We Die, and we'll talk about that as well. Welcome, Johanna. Hello. Thank you, Cheryl, for having me. 
I'm very pleased to. I, um, I've been thinking a lot lately, just serendipitously, about uh, the aspect of forgiveness in grief. And so I'm, I'm very excited to talk with you about that. And then um, almost, I almost want to say progressing from there, uh, you know, your work on um, afterlife and uh, the death process itself. I'm very excited to talk about both of those today. Right. Uh, let's start with talking a, a little bit about the film Forgiveness Stories for Our Time, which is a kind of the way I was first uh, exposed to your work. Uh, it, it really impacted me. It was, it was, I've read a lot about forgiveness, thought about a lot about forgiveness, been exposed to many, many different um, uh, ways of thinking about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what impacted me about your film was two things. One was the um, was the types of loss, the the devastating types of loss that your uh, subjects had undergone. Um, certainly, very violent, and uh, all four of them, and um, particularly. Uh, you know, if any, if any kinds of loss would have someone to blame, it would be those types of losses. Um, right. Was there a reason? Did you originally plan to focus on uh, on those more brutal sorts of losses that people have? Right. Well, I knew for a long time I wanted to uh, do a film on forgiveness, and and I really felt when I think about war and I think about all the difficulties and inner city problems and all and, and so on you know what you know was there like one magic bullet that would take care of the world like could that be <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I started thinking well if we could forgive one another for things that happened to us that would surely go a long way and then and there's yes. remar- many many different remarkable stories of, of forgiveness um, but I, I felt that you couldn't really compare apples to oranges in a way. You know, it's like someone who stole your backpack, you know, versus, you know, someone who murdered your child are, you know, seemingly two very different kinds of forgiveness. So I thought, well, I would look at the most horrible thing in the world. You know, what is the most terrible, awful thing in the world? And could you forgive that? And so I felt that the murder and loss of a loved one was surely the most horrific thing. So how mm. could it be? How, in the face of such overwhelming devastation, could you move forward in a healthy way? And so that, that was kind of the, the motivation behind those um, picking these stories. And I looked at over 100 stories and, and really, you know, considered quite seriously around 23 and then I picked uh, these four. It it has that depth that I, I was imagining that you had talked with many, many, many people because it has that sort of a depth and breadth. Um, one thing that really stood out to me is that there was not an assumption in it that uh, that people would come to a place where they say, I forgive the person who did this. Uh you know, a few of the guests talked about not saying that or not not thinking of it in that way, but still finding a way to move forward. I thought that was mm-hmm. a very compelling, compelling mm-hmm. message with without uh, violence in their own hearts, but also not 
uh, kind of just not offering that to the other person. Would that be fair to say? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, again, it's like we, we looked at, at four stories. Um, two of them were um, uh, murder in the sense of very consciously going after someone and killing them, you know, a, a child, a father. And the other two were acts of um, terrorism in London and one in Northern Ireland. Um, so an IRA bombing and uh, London Underground uh, bomb- bombings that happened. Mm. And so, you know, they, in a sense, it's like there's there's um, one that feels like it was premeditated, you know, and then others that felt like it was just out to ha- cause as much destruction and harm as possible. So in, in all of those cases, though, um, it felt like, where, although not everyone could use the word forgiveness, in Europe they prefer to talk about reconciliation or to reconcile themselves to what's taken place. A very different idea, but at the at the heart of it, it is this idea that um, you have to make peace with yourself. You mm. have to come to some place within you to move forward. And so, as as um, one of uh, our our stories goes. The woman said, I realized I had to really forgive myself first because when someone is lost, even if you had absolutely no control over the situation whatsoever, somehow we feel guilty about the things that have happened. Like, absolutely. I could have, I should have, I would have. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to hold that in some kind of loving embrace and say, I forgive myself. You know, and, and then, you know, the other... The next foot forward is this idea that to live in a in harboring anger and hatred towards um, another person, like a, another story that we told, the woman in, in Newfoundland, Canada, whose, whose father was killed by the next door neighbor with an axe. I mean, I can't imagine anything more brutal than that. She, she knew at every moment where the man who killed her father was. Mm. You know, he was in, in a psychiatric prison, but she always knew where she was in relationship to him. And mm-hmm. her, she became very, very sick. And uh, a lot of it, you know, she says is because of the, the anger and hatred and desire for revenge that she held in her heart. And so the next foot forward for her was saying that she's going to let go of her anger towards him and say, you know, it doesn't mean that a wrong hasn't been committed. And I think that's very important with acts of very forgiveness. Much. You know, uh, things go wrong. Things are bad. This situation should not have happened. But, you know, it's some kind of, for my own health and well-being, I forgive, you know, I forgive well, I think- I think you're bringing up a really elemental point in, in at least the way I look at forgiveness, that we don't forgive acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that would seem rather crazy to make, to somehow say, it's okay that you, whatever they did. <laughs> but mm-hmm. to say, I forgive your humanity. I forgive your inability to do better. Uh, that right. seems more possible to me. Right. Um, right, and I think that's uh, that particular person whose father was murdered. Uh, that is really what seemed at the heart of her forgiveness. That 
uh, she was able to realize that he was incapable of doing better. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in other cases, um, as it was uh, for Leslie Perrott, where her daughter was killed, it was she gave forgiveness, in a sense, you know, to, to the murderer. Um, she said, it's, I wish him the best healing. I wish him, you know, um, to, to get better. I mean, anyone who commits murder is, is sick in more ways than we can even begin to talk about on this show. But, you know, so she's wishing him well, but she, he still needs to be in prison. Mm-hmm. He, uh, and she doesn't want to be friends with him, you know. You know, one of my teachers, uh, Stephen Levine, used to say, "When you forgive somebody, you let them into heart, into your heart, but not necessarily into your house." Right. <laughs> and I think that's, that's a, a key, one. a key point. We it it doesn't say anything about what we're going to do next. It doesn't make us um, unrealistic about the dangers of certain ways of being in the world. Mm-hmm. So, so is there a connection for you? You know, you're working on a film now about um, what the experience of death is and to a degree what the experience of afterlife is to the best you can investigate it. Um, were you, was that always coming after this forgiveness film, or did it evolve? How are the two connected for you? Well, I've done a few things in between, um, but I think that the the film uh, When You Die, which I think we're going to change to When We Die, but right now it's WhenYouDie.org, um, it is really... Uh, it, it started... with The inspiration started because of my own personal experience um, where I had had um, experienced a lot of um, loss at a very young age, my mother, my very closest childhood friend, and and then later a terrible car accident, and mm-hmm. in a very short period of time, and I had no language for for the grief and the isolation, and you know I had no I, no way of talking. I couldn't talk about what was going on. And no one around me had a clue how to talk to me either. And I, you know, as an adult now, you know, can look back and say it's, it's because we have a death-denying culture. We push these things away. We give people very small amounts of, you know, grief leave and, and then expect that you're going to get over it. Um, and and I, I think that my inspiration for this film really is looking at normalizing the conversation around death and dying. And so part of that is looking at all the different aspects of death. You know, we 80% of us in North America say that we want to die at home, but 60% of us die in a hospital. And of that mm-hmm. 60%, 40 are in intensive care. You know, as long as yes. we try to cure death, you know, we're going to, you know, prolong suffering and at a huge economic cost. So I feel like we're at a crisis point. And so the, you know, forgiveness, I think every step of the way, forgiveness plays a role in, in loss and death and, and life 
actually. You know, I think it's a very life-giving thing. And I think that in, in loss, there is tremendous life. Um, so I, I guess I, I think I'm running on a little bit here, but the, these are all <laughs> elements that came to play for me in wanting to, um, to, to do a, a full feature documentary. And also we have a website that is um, a resource as well as original material from the evolving documentary, because it's still a work in progress. It's, um, uh, it's also a resource for um, bringing people's attention to many different people in many different fields who are uh, part of uh, end-of-life care, um, you know, everything from, uh, you know, hospice things to personal right. stories to, you know, how do you want to... What do you want to, your funeral to be? You know, you know. Wanna... Yes, and, and let's talk more about that after the break. But I want to give people a little bit of a taste of sure. of what uh, of the film before we cut to break. Um, I'd love to share uh, Penny's um, words about uh, end of life. Great. Let's let's do that. Okay. Well, for me. The, I think it's really important to study these experiences because, first of all, they give us an insight into the dying process and it gives us an understanding of what people go through as they are actually dying. So, for example, through my nursing career, many times I witnessed people who were dying conversing with people I couldn't see. You know, my first day on the ward as a student nurse, the nurse who was handing over from the night shift said, the man in section C, bed 6, He'll be dead by the end of the morning. He's been talking to his dead mother since uh, three o'clock this morning. And I turned around and I was wondering if they were saying that just to wind me up because it was my first day on the ward. But everyone carried on as if it was normal. And so nurses are quite familiar with these experiences. And indeed, when I went out to look at this man, I witnessed him talking to someone I couldn't see. And shortly before the end of the morning, he did die and I witnessed his death. And just shortly before he died, he opened out his arms and it was as if he was smiling at someone and trying to reach someone. And he had this most lovely smile on his face. And then he just kind of put his arms down by his side, closed his eyes, and it looked like he'd gone to sleep. But in fact, he'd actually died at that point. I think that that gives people a little bit of a flavor of what you're trying to talk about here. And I and I. Uh, I love that theme. Let's come back and talk more about it after the break, Johanna. Great. I'd love to. And listeners, you can find links to my website, social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can sign up for my email list that is linked there, too. To find Johanna Lunn, go to www.whenyoudie.org. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk. 
with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Johanna Lunn about her work as a filmmaker in films such as Forgiveness, Stories of Our Time, and her new film, When You Die, which may become When We Die um, sometime soon. Um, Johanna, I was mentioning to, to you during the break that, um, you know, I the connection I was making between your two the two pieces of your work that I know the best uh, to me have to do with softening ourselves to these um, experiences that before you have them seem um, unlivable. You know, as if as if we can't face them, um, mm-hmm. um, death, injury. All of these harder emotional experiences that we get the idea we just can't live through somehow and work like yours um, reinforces the idea that, in fact, many of us do live through them and we can. They can be faced. Right. Um, right. And sometimes very quickly, for instance, um, I, have a, I have a friend who was on the show early on. Michaela is her name. She was the victim of a hate crime. Mm-hmm. And as soon as she was conscious again, she was, she forgave. Mm. You know, it was immediate. Uh, and it was about uh, in the face of her death, nothing else really, she wasn't going to hold on to anything. Um, so I make that connection too, that death can teach us forgiveness in a way. Once we soften to that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's too. There's um, a, a wonderful uh, pioneer of palliative care uh, in America, um, Dr. Biok, um, yes. wrote some groundbreaking books and an absolutely wonderful human being. And, and he says, you know, one of the most important things to say, you know, the, the questions that people have to ask at the end of their life or, or statements that should be said is one is, I forgive you. Uh, will you forgive me? I love you. And I think that, that, that he meant it in the context of family and friends. Um, but I, I think it's very powerful when you think of all the things that, you know, the little things that happen in the course of a day 
that um, don't strike a chord and sometimes the big arguments and the big problems that happen that never get resolved. But we have bonds with people. And so really how, you know, do we need to wait until we're dying to, to, to ask for forgiveness? Mm. <laughs> you know, but I think it's a theme. I think, I think it's what we try to get right in our lives all the time. Um, and, and we have a culture that has not been supportive of things like forgiveness. Uh, it certainly denies death at every turn, even though in the popular culture, you know, we love horror films. You know, and, and we <laughs> well, that's, that's not real death. Serial murders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's, not, that's not real death. In some sense, we know it's well, bad, that's, yeah, it's pretend, that's, right? <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. That's right. Um, but but nonetheless, it's like uh, we've had probably a hundred years of moving from uh, you know a Victorian period, you know, up until you know where we are now. That is, um, you know, gone from you know an ever increasing levels of measurable scientific materialistic, you know, kind of thinking and culture, and anything that is immaterial is woo woo, you know, or you know, not of any value. Things should be measurable, and so our emotions are the things that have come to suffer the suffer. You know, we don't value them when actually it's emotions that can teach us a lot and, you know, alert us when we're in bad territory that needs to be corrected. Or, you know, there's a lot of wisdom that we have um, lost. And, uh, and along with it, in terms of the death and dying, we've actually lost the language of death and dying. We don't really know what happens in the mind as the body is dying, you know, we, are com- we can't separate mind and body. You know, we're stuck together. So, you know, I think that, that people like my grandmother understood this. She, she grew up in her family homestead that was built in the 1880s, and it's where uh, she was born at the turn of the last century. Um, she uh, had 13 brothers and sisters, and I'm sure there were, I know of five babies that didn't make it. So they were very used to birth and death in that house. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the whole, you know, generations came and went in that house. And really, you know, the whole play of, of you know, the great passages of human life, birth and death all happening in one house. And they had rooms for, for birthing, and they had rooms to, in the parlor room to lay out the dead bodies and a little special door to carry the bodies out of. And, and there was a whole language about these things that they understood. Like, like that clip from Penny, Dr. Penny Sartori is uh, in Wales, and she's done um, one of the most comprehensive clinical studies of end-of-life experiences and near-death experiences. And, uh, you know, that what she was talking about was seeing this man dying, and just before he died, it, he seemed to be talking to somebody that no one else could see. And, yes. it, and this is something hospice nurses know a lot about, and uh, peop, nursing, nurses that work in palliative care, but we don't talk about those things. It's a language that the majority of us know nothing about, and yet when we're experiencing, 
exposed to it in our own families and from our own loved ones, we don't talk about it either because that's kind of unusual and really out there stuff. But maybe it's not as unusual. I'm not thinking it is. Um, it certainly happened with with my wife before she died. She was um, definitely in the room f- with her mother. There was mm-hmm. just no question about it. And my own mother, um, one of her last statements was, there's angels on the ceiling, the little buggers. <laughs> <laughs> Which was not was not her usual language, but she was definitely like, "Oh, time to go, darn," you know. But you know? Um, I I think there's something what people don't know who haven't experienced that is that that can actually be a very positive experience. And and I'm thinking about your um, subject, Andrew Halicek, and and the the uh, clip we have of his about kind of the sacred nature of being in the room with somebody who's having those experiences. Um, Might we hear that? Is there anything more you want to say about him? Uh, No, except maybe just to plug his book. He wrote a wonderful book called Preparing to Die, and uh, it's got a lot of very practical information in there as well. It's a scholarly book as well, but there's, there's mixed in with the scholarship is wonderful hands-on practical stuff. Mm. Good to know about that. Mm. My mother was uh, dying from Alzheimer's, or suffering from Alzheimer's, and they were living back in Michigan, and I'm living here in Colorado. And my father had kept me fairly updated about her situation, and he called one day and told me that my mother had stopped eating. And I knew at that point that if I wanted to see her again, I had to get on a plane and go back. And, And of course, I did just that. And it turned out to be one of the great experiences of my life because when I was with her, I can assure you, and if you've been with loved ones who are dying, I'm sure you can relate to this experience itself. When I was with her, the entire atmosphere was so charged. Um, in, in many ways, it was really quite sacred because I wasn't thinking about tomorrow. I wasn't particularly thinking about yesterday. I was so bolted to the present moment by the impact of the situation that I was in that it was as if my mother, this magnificent being who had brought me into physical life, was bringing me into life one last time before she left it in terms of showing me that when we fully live in the present moment, which this experience almost forced me into, life itself becomes extraordinarily powerful and and really, you could say, sacred. What I what I loved about that was the way that he talked about the experience of of presence in it. Mm-hmm. I I really feel he captured that so well. Um, I I can remember that feeling. It brought it back for me. Uh, just there's nothing else going on. You know, you're just right there. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I, I loved, too, the way he he honored his mother in the telling of that story by saying, you know, this magnificent woman who brought me into life, mm-hmm. you know, giving me this final lesson, you know, of, of what it is like to be fully present. I mean, it it, it it's it's um, you kind of wish we didn't have to learn it that way. 
in some ways, but on the other hand, it is an amazing gift to be so present um, with someone who's dying, so um, alive in a sense, you know, that there isn't anything else happening but this moment right now, and, and that is a great gift. I, I so agree with that, and and um, kind of I, I remember feeling the irony that this thing that I'd been fearful of for a long, long time. I I have to say I wasn't really fearful right uh, for the few years before she died. I I definitely uh, um, accepted that that was coming. I wasn't living in fear of it for several years before, but I had you know big fear along the way and when it finally happened it didn't seem fearful to me at all it yeah. just was it just was yeah. <laughs> you know it yeah. just was was what was happening um yeah. does is that f- familiar to you as well oh very definitely I, and i the thing we really can't talk about death without talking about fear um it's partly why we've come you know partly because we don't make death part of our lives in a daily sort of sense. We, it's not a normal situation. It's an extraordinary situation. And so it's something we don't know about. And we are afraid of things that we don't know about. But yes. when, you know, when your lover, mother, father, sister are dying, you know, there's, it, 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 you, fear doesn't come into play in the sense that you're there they're there, and this is what's happening. So, you know, in that moment, it's not necessarily, you know, we're not faced with fear, but thinking about death, preparing for death, dealing with your own um, terminal diagnosis or the diagnosis of a loved one, um, those things seem insurmountable because we don't have a baseline for this. We don't, we don't have much of a way of thinking about it. But people that have been faced with a lot of um, death in their lives, you know, I, I think they tend to be much more at ease in life. But we shouldn't underplay or, you know, shouldn't say, well, fear is bad and death is good and, you know, because that doesn't make any sense either. No, it's just, you know, fear, yeah. fear is a very real thing, but it's only because of, out of ignorance. And, um, I was told that the word fear comes from a, a Latin root, and, and if your listeners know better, please please correct me, uh, around fair, as in uh, a toll fair or, uh, you know, on a highway, toll, that, huh. that, fe- that, that fear is the toll, the price that you pay um, to actually live. Whether that's linguistically correct or not it's it's a very it's a very powerful idea isn't it well <laughs> even as an anagram it's powerful that somehow um we uh you know that that's very closely aligned in my mind with another saying uh loss is the price for love yeah, uh you know right. that there's there's just no way around it in a mm-hmm. sense. And I, I do want to say, 
um, we're talking about a particular experience that not everybody does have. Not everybody goes into their death um, peacefully. Not everybody is peaceful attending a death. But we're talking about the possibility of that, that that is possible and much more common than people generally assume. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's true. I think that's true. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think even even when people are frozen in a hospital room and they don't know how to talk to one another, that, that there are so many excellent people uh, working in hospitals today that can help families start talking together. Um, you know, we, we, we are so fortunate, you know, I don't think we're even aware of the, the, the angels we have working in this industry um, that can help bring people around, that are there for support, that, that um, yeah, that can support families as they're going through difficult times. Absolutely. And, and uh, of course, I've interviewed on this show many, many, many people who have... Um, who are in end of life care and mm-hmm. um i i just feel they're angels you know i've encountered many angels in my own losses and then there are people who are doing the work to really change the conversation and i'm so grateful for what they do because we are all going to face that and the idea of facing it with with some sense that it's okay is is really valuable Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like with this film project, and we're talking, as you know, because it's a work in progress and it's not, it's not finished, you know, I, I, don't, I can't really name all the names of the people who are going to be in the film, but a lot of stories from people who are those frontline angels that know how to walk into a room and make a difference. You know, whether it's some of the people like Penny who have... Um, been able to map some of the territory of death and dying, you know, or Andrew facing his own mother's death and how it changed his life and how he helps other people face their um, their own mortality and, and help other people die, mm-hmm. um, as well as, uh, yeah, hospice nurses who, you know, get called in at the last moment into a room and discover that there's an entire room of equipment that would, you know, take um, a state power company, you know, <laughs> keep them in business for a year. <laughs> uh, and and how, how she skillfully got down to the root of what does a family really need and got rid of the equipment and provided an environment where the family was supported and they were actually able to have conversations about forgiveness and love and gratitude and record messages to the grandchildren. And, you know, I mean, it's incredible. It's just incredible. There are people taking down barriers every day and we're learning. We're learning. A lot. And, and learning to, and I, I'd like to continue this after the break, learning to differentiate, you know, when medical inf- intervention is actually very useful. You know, right. I'm very glad we have that for many, many oh, uh, yeah. people in my life. And when it is, is in the way. 
So mm-hmm. let's let's continue with that a little when we come back. And Great. listeners, you can find me at weatheringgrief.com and you can find Johanna Lunn and her films at whenyoudie.org. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Johanna Lund talking about her work as a filmmaker, and in particular, the the film's that she's done that deal with death and loss. Um, and we're mostly talking at the moment about um, the experience of death, um, which you're going to be talking deeply about in your new, in your new work, when you die, which may be when we die. <laughs> um, I, I like to get both in there. Um, and the people that facilitate, you know, there's there's just uh, for such a new field as hospice and palliative care is, I think it's really incredible how many um, heartful and wonderful people there are doing that work. There's there's really a community, uh, uh, quite a strong community at this point. Even more than when my wife died in '95, it feels even more well developed and you know, it's kind of getting a little more in- integrated into the medical world, Would, wouldn't you say? Oh, I, I definitely think that that's true. And I think part of the precipitating, you know, factor of that is that there's this gray tsunami. You know, the boomers are all are headed, um, you know, are, are are not going to go easily into that night. You know, they're not going to have death like their parents, I guess is the other way of saying it. So... Mm-hmm. You know, it, I think that the, that that has has two things going on. When I was um, invited to the Mayo Clinic last fall to present 
um, this project is a work in progress at their annual conference on humanities and medicine. Um, one of the things that I really learned uh, from the doctors there is that, you know, first of all, they're, you know, they are, their whole training is based on curing. You know, mm-hmm. it's not based on how to help people at the, their end of life. So that their training isn't about that. It's really been about curing. But so many people are coming into the medical system that they can't afford this idea of curing people who are actually dying. So that, that, that question of when to do no harm comes into play um, becomes a more nuanced area. And so I think that's why palliative care has really become a much, much bigger um, form of medicine that's so deeply respected because these are people who are trained in end-of-life care and, and with the emphasis on it being end-of-life. I have a, a friend who's a, uh, the head of geriatric medicine and local hospital system here in uh, Nova Scotia where I live. And she has uh, created a unit of people that work to help assess when someone is no longer going to benefit from procedures and when it's time to present to the, the family that maybe, in fact, their loved one is, is you know, frail and dying now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then ask the family, what do they want? Do they want certain procedures to happen or, or do they want to turn their attention to quality of life and living into death? And one family that she uh, worked with had made the decision that no, in fact, they, they wanted to make the end of uh, their mother's life as uh, meaningful and rich as possible. And uh, so she came back to the medical team and said, um, we're not going to do these procedures. The family has asked me to advocate on behalf of them, and um, they, they want to move into a hospice setting. And uh, so she delivered that message. She it was the end of her day. She got in her car. And before she even got home, she had three phone calls from specialists saying, are you sure? Do you know what this means? <laughs> uh, so that it, it was difficult. It was, you know, difficult to come to that conclusion. Um, but, but I think that the, you know, both society is beginning to change a little bit and uh, medicine is also coming forward and saying, you know, there are ways that we can be helpful in, in, um, working with pain management, and then other specialties, you know, other, other healthcare uh, people that can help people at the end of their life as opposed to trying to cure. But it's a tough, you know, I, I think we're in a real push-pull, but I, I think that there are all the right elements that are beginning to come into play. Um, but we have to talk about it, and we have to know what we want. Absolutely. I, I, one of my uh, previous guests, uh, whose name is Jessica Nudig-Zitter, she's a ph- physician, palliative care and emergency room certified, mm. which is a very interesting combination. Mm. And she's been doing work to train people in the hospital sh- where she works how to differentiate, uh, because many people, um, many people's families bring them to the emergency room uh, when they're dying, 
you know, seeing right. what's happening as an emergency. And she's been doing training and how to differentiate when it's really a medical emergency, throw out all the, you know, pull out all the stops. And when it's actually dying and how to talk with people about that. And I think that's just ever so crucial. I know I had a friend whose husband, uh, they had decided no more care, but he would fall out of bed and she was not strong enough to get him back in bed. And the only people to call were EMTs. She'd meet them out in the street and say, I'll only let you in if you agree not to do anything except help me get him back in bed. You know, we really don't have the systems in place for that kind of help. Right. Right. But it's reaching the point where we have to, you know, and I, and I think that that's part of what a, a film like this can help to do is to generate conversations, you know, where, where you know, what, what do we need to ask our, ourselves? You know, what, what do I want? You know, how do I want to be cared for? Um, uh, you know, what kind of funeral do I want? You know, um, Absolutely. or how can I help someone who's dying? You know, how can I talk to someone who's dying? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this this final clip we have, I feel, would be very appropriate right now because uh, it's someone who uh, really does uh, think in those terms. How mm-hmm. am I going to support this whole process, whatever it turns out to be? Um, right. Can we can we listen to David? David McGinley. McGinley, yes. yes. Yeah, he's a chaplain in a palliative care unit. I find that patients commonly will protect their family from the conversation and reality of death. But they have begun to negotiate with it from the moment they were diagnosed. And it's been the secret inner world that they've been wrestling with. And families protect the patient from the conversation about death because it's their greatest fear and they don't dare speak it because it might give power to it or make it more real. In both cases, the people are not aware of how to be present with themselves. They're wanting to be responsible for the other person's feelings to protect them, and that's part of love. So to get them to talk about it, Sometimes I'll be very blunt. I'll ask, with the family there, I'll ask the patient, what do you think it'll be like to die? Who would you like to have around you when you go? Are you curious about what lies in wait for you? Would you like to be able to watch over your family? I'll turn to the family. Would you like him to watch over you if he promises not to scare you or mess around with your life? The quality of my presence can open up the conversation, the ability to be frank and gentle and name the elephant in the room. I've definitely experienced the power of that. Obviously, I'm quite good at these conversations, but it's a different thing to bring it up, for instance, with my mother during her illness. Boy, it took a lot of fortitude to keep being um, the one to bring things up. And once she was in hospice, 
being able to let go of that and let other people generate the conversations was such a relief. (laughs) (laughs) And she responded quite well, you know, sometimes a third um, point on the, on the scale really, really helps. Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) That's very true. Well, I've been told that um, by people who really know these things, that um, um, we can't always talk to our loved ones, but you know, if if we're dying, it might not be as easy to talk to your daughter. Um, but but maybe you can, there's somebody, and sometimes it's like the, the least suspecting person, the person who you know empties the bedpan. Maybe that's the person you can talk to. Yes, but that everybody wants to talk. Everybody wants to talk. That's a that's a nice thought. Do you do you believe everybody wants to talk? Um, I do. I'm not sure everybody gives themselves permission to do it. Yes, but I think that everybody really wants to. Yeah, I do. That's um, you know the the uh, deaths where talking was possible in my life. That's those conversations stay with me as well, uh, in a very beautiful way. Uh, they're, they're still present as forces in my life, those end-of-life conversations. Would that be true to say of you as well? Oh, I think that's very true in my life, yeah. You're, yeah. you're kind of setting a stage, in a sense, um, for, the, for the relationship uh, afterwards. Yeah, well, I don't know that that when my father was dying, he he thought of it that way, but we had some wonderful conversations. And and the same with my mother and we we sometimes had difficulty with conversation previously. It was easier in that period of time when she knew life was ending mm-hmm. for for any variety of reasons, but I do think it was um a little easier for her to to share, right? Well, so you, uh, I want you to keep me updated about this film. Um, it sounds as if you do present it sometimes. Uh, now, is that true? And and uh, kind of share share with people the ongoing project. Well, I think on the site we we do share clips. And uh, that's probably the the best best place to to stay tuned um, from for because I'm still trying to raise money for this film. Uh, I, I do some presentations, you know, when asked, um, definitely, and and show more clips and share more of that journey. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, the website is the best way to kind of follow our progress, and it's really. It's a journey. It is, it is an exploration of all of these issues of what happens when we die. So it's, it's everything from the moral and ethical issues of, of uh, end-of-life care to whether consciousness does continue at the end of life. So it's the bringing mind and body together um, at end of life. And if there's some angel out there who wants more of this kind of work uh, to be available, 
maybe they will get in touch with you and help you get it finished. That would be oh, a wonderful we would thing for that. me <laughs> if that were to come out of the show. That would be wonderful. <laughs> I, I hope people will go watch your other show, uh, your other film, too, Forgiveness Stories for Our Time. Um, I think that, uh, you know, really um, would give people an idea what uh, the depth you might bring to this project or are bringing to this project. So mm. hopefully... That, that will happen. I really want to thank you for being with me today, Johanna. It's really been a pleasure. Cheryl, thank you so much. It's been an honor talking with you today. Me too. And be sure to find Johanna Lunn and her films at, and other resources at whenyoudie.org. Next week, I'll welcome Terry Daniel, a chaplain and creator of the Afterlife Awareness Conference. It looks like I'm doing a two-part series this, these two weeks. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.